From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, Yemen. For the past three years, the United States has supported Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates with arms sales, intelligence, and refueling operations in the ongoing civil war in Yemen, where the government is fighting Iranian-backed Houthi rebels. The bombings there have left large numbers of civilian casualties. The charity Save the Children estimates an average of 140 children have been killed every day since the beginning of the Saudi-led coalition strikes against Houthis. Yemen is now in the midst of a full-blown humanitarian crisis. Malnutrition and disease are rampant. Children are starving to death, but not for food scarcity. The markets are full. Instead, they are wasting away for lack of purchasing power. The economy has collapsed. In this pediatric ward in Aden, every room tells a version of the same story. 11-month-old Malika Al-Khadr, clinging to life, weighing only 7 pounds. She's just one of the 17 million Yemenis who aren't getting enough food to survive. But the killing of Washington Post journalist Jamil Khashoggi a month ago in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul has shifted some things in the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. And it has prompted some key people in Washington to question U.S. support for the war in Yemen. Here's Secretary of Defense James Mattis speaking at the U.S. Institute of Peace earlier this week. We've got to move toward a peace effort here, and we can't say we're going to do it sometime in the future. We need to be doing this in the next 30 days. We've admired this problem for long enough down there. We wanted to get a sense of how devastating life is for Yemenis now and how the midterm congressional elections might affect U.S. policy in the war. Here to help us sort out these questions is Iona Craig. She's a British-Irish freelance journalist who lived in Yemen for several years and still makes regular trips back. Welcome. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm well. Thanks so much for joining us. Not at all. I actually want to start with what drew you to Yemen in the first place, because actually your time in Yemen starts before this conflict. Well, it was really curiosity that took me there in the first place. Uh, I didn't get into journalism until I was in my 30s. And um, I wanted, always wanted to be in the region. My father had worked in the Middle East most of his life, but very much on the different side of the fence to the one that I find myself on now. He worked in in investment banking, but also with the Ministry of Defense in the UK on, on arms sales to Saudi Arabia and, and the Gulf, actually. But that meant I always had an interest in the Middle East. And when I started in journalism, um, it was my aim to base myself out in the region. But I didn't want to be where there were a lot of other journalists and there are a lot of journalists in places like Beirut and Cairo and Istanbul. So, yeah, I just became curious about Yemen and I decided to go and see all the kind of Yemen experts or specialists in London. And that took all of about a day because there were so few. And so, yes, when I'd finished at journalism school, I three months later took myself off to Yemen in, in October 2010. And then, of course, within two, three weeks of arriving, there was... Um, a major security incident with the parcel bomb plot, as it is now known, um, when al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen put bombs on planes bound for the US. So that was quite a rude awakening to reporting on Yemen, really. And then a few months later, the Arab Spring started and Yemen's own political uprising began in January 2011. And I suppose you could say the rest is history, really. So were you in Yemen when, in 2011, during the Arab Spring, when their own political uprising began? Yes, I was. I think what most people forget about Yemen is it lasted 10 months. It was for the whole of that year that uh, the protesters were camped out on the streets in Yemen. 
So yes, it was certainly um, the first revolution I've ever witnessed. And it wasn't something I was expecting when I turned up in Yemen in 2010 to be covering a revolution within a few months of, a, of having arrived. What was it like to report from Yemen then, especially as a woman? I mean, could you be a clear Western journalist? Did you dress differently? How did, how did you go about it? I was working actually for a local English language newspaper when I first arrived in Yemen, the Yemen Times. And it wasn't really an issue. Uh, I mean, I didn't have to cover my head. I didn't have to wear sort of, you know, the black abaya or anything like that. Yes, I had to dress conservatively, actually, because I have short hair. And many Yemenis used to get confused. And there would often be arguments that I understood in Arabic going on on public transport about whether I was male or female. And... um <laughs> That was used to cause quite a lot of amusement. And, and some people who had met me many times and still mistaken me for being a man. Uh, also, because I used to rush around on the back of a motorbike, which wasn't common amongst Yemeni women, certainly in Sana'a. But it became more difficult during 2011 because of the coverage of the freelancers that were there. And I had several friends who were deported, taken from their house literally overnight and half the foreign press pack, which was already pretty small, disappeared overnight um, and were deported from Yemen in early 2011. And that then changed the dynamics. And that made those of us that were left behind quite a bit more nervous than we had been beforehand and having to be very careful about when and how we were covering the protests in, in order to avoid the same fate, really, I suppose. And you kind of knew where the red lines were. So it was never a police state, even though they did crack down on certain groups of dissidents, particularly in the southern separatists and the Houthis, as we now know them as. But yes, in general, they weren't that organized or sophisticated. And actually, the journalists, the ones of us that were left behind, um, we moved around the city quite a bit. A lot of the international community and aid agency workers were evacuated and I had keys to a lot of houses. So we used to dodge and move around quite a bit to, to avoid getting into trouble with the political security forces and, and the national security there in Yemen at the time. But then they had bigger things to worry about. You know, then the, the protests escalated into fighting and street battles in the capital and in other cities. And, you know, I think then we slipped down the list of things for them to worry about, to be honest. And when you're saying we, do you mean a cohort of other foreign journalists? Yes. Well, we were down to two at one point, myself and another American freelancer called Jeb Boone. But otherwise, there were never more than sort of four or five of us there at, at any one time. None of us had covered conflict before. And so it was pretty haphazard, to be honest with you. We learned as we went along. I was, I was the eldest because I got into journalism as a second career. And I'd had some experience in first aid anyway previous to that. But even looking back now, I put myself in situations that I would never put myself in now. And I can say I was probably reckless on, on some occasions. But it was just a situation of not being so aware as you should be, not having that experience, I guess. And and the uprising in Yemen sort of escalated quite gradually. So it started with just plain street protests, a bit of rock throwing, then to sort of tear gas and water cannon, to eventually live ammunition and snipers on rooftops. So we learned as we went along. And because of that slower escalation, we had that opportunity to feel our way a bit, I suppose. Um, but yes, I had many close encounters, let's put it that way, during 2011. And I, I learned my lesson, but thankfully, not by getting myself hurt in the process. Can you tell us one situation that you now look back on and cringe thinking about? 
Well, yeah, I, I ended up writing about it for The Times and that was um, in May 2011. I was with a bunch of protesters watching them one evening. There had already been a couple of people shot already by soldiers who they were confronting. They were trying to push the boundaries of the protest camp and it got dark and there were about 100 soldiers there probably and they were somewhat penned in, the protesters, and they just suddenly opened fire, shooting from the hip in a street situation. So you've got an, you know, a relatively narrow road and not many escape routes. And then kind of panic ensued and I took cover behind a wooden box that was an ATM machine and it doesn't take a genius to work out that AK-47 fire can penetrate a wooden box quite easily. And yes, I got bundled under a whole pile of people that died behind the same place for shelter. Initially thought I was actually going to get crushed to death. And then as I looked up, I could see the snipers, um, the muzzle flash through the darkness, that kind of very distinctive orange flash from the end of a gun and that they were shooting down on us from above as well as coming at us from down the street. So yes, I had to dig my way out from being under the bottom of a pile of people, including a boy who I could hear was struggling to breathe, who was crushed underneath me and had to run for it. I had to run through the soldiers who were shooting um, because that was the only way out. And so it was only by luck that I got out of there. I got caught by another soldier who was in a line behind those ones who were shooting and He had a baton on him and he hit the guy behind me who fell on top of me and then hit me as well. But I still managed to get up and probably ran the fastest I ever had in my life and got out of there. But yeah, that was a a situation when I look back now, knowing that I should never have put myself in that position, either in that location or without an exit route and, and various sort of simple things, really. But yeah, I was very lucky and I would have had nobody to blame but myself if I'd end up getting shot that night. And, and over 200 people were injured that night and, and, and at least a dozen killed. Wow. Um I wonder if you can lay out for us the chronology of the war that Yemen finds itself in now and the battle between the Saudi-led coalition and the Houthi fighters. How did we get here? Where did it begin? Well, I think with Yemen's history, it could take you back hundreds of years, if you like, really. But um, to bring it a little more up to date, I mean, really, it was like we've seen in the rest of the region, a kind of fallout from the 2011 uprising. And at the end of that year, Ali Abdullah Saleh, Yemen's president of 33 years, he was forced to step down and hand over power to his deputy, and uh, who then became President Hadi in, in February 2012. And Saleh was allowed to stay in the country. He was given immunity from prosecution. And what ensued then was a period of political transition in Yemen. But really, as that time ticked on, it became quite clear that a lot of people were preparing for conflict in the background. And Saleh, the former president, was certainly one of those. And by 2014, when clashes broke out in Sada, which is the homeland of the Houthis, I don't think anybody predicted then that they would end up taking Sana'a. But it became clear that Saleh had then allied himself with the Houthis. And the Houthis have been his enemy for many years. They're a Zaidi Shia movement who were formed out of a 1990s youth movement in northern Yemen and took the name of their then leader in 2004 and then fought six wars with Saleh's government between 2004 and 2010. But in 2014, in a classic Saleh style, he he teamed up with them and they took the capital Sana'a then in 2014 when I was living there without really anybody contesting that. So there was fighting briefly for three or four days on the outskirts of the capital 
at a main military camp there. But once they got into the city, the deals had already been done and they took over all the ministries without a shot being fired. Then after that, despite doing a deal with the UN and the then Yemeni government, they proceeded to take more territory and fight down um, south all the way to Aden on the, on the southern coast. And then President Hadi was, as a result, forced into exile when the Houthis fought their way into Aden, where he'd run into hiding. And once he'd fled into exile in, in Riyadh, the Saudi-led coalition, as we now know them, then um, started their air campaign in March 2015 in response to that. And uh, Hadi has remained pretty much in exile in Riyadh since then. Well, you often hear that obviously part of the problem is that there is some Iranian support for the Houthis, that they're Iranian-backed. What, what's the real nature of Iranian support for the Houthis? Well, I think a lot of people try and put it in the sectarian bracket for a start. And the Zaydi Shias, which is what the Houthis are, are actually closer to Sunni Islam than they are to the Twelver Shias of Iran. And there was certainly always political alignment with Tehran, but both Saleh and then Hadi after him and the Saudis had always vastly exaggerated this link with Iran and certainly support. And it came out after the Houthis had taken Sana'a in 2014 from the US, from the Obama administration, that in fact Tehran had tried to stop them from taking, or at least advise them not to take Sana'a, the capital, in 2014. And so I think when people call them a proxy, um, that's, again, a vast exaggeration. Having said all of that, the longer the conflict's gone on, it's really cemented the relationship with Iran. So you've now got the Houthis using equipment. They just didn't have either the um, ability or, or the wherewithal to use before and just wasn't in the Yemeni arsenal. So you've seen drones being used. You've seen ballistic missiles that have a longer range than anything that was in the Yemeni arsenal before. These are weapons that have been modified and there have been military trainers involved from both Hezbollah in Lebanon and from Iran who have helped the Houthis to do that. Uh, and that's quite clear now. But it's very little input compared to what Iran is doing or has done, let's say, in places like Syria. It's really a way of them to poke the bear, if you like, to be able to antagonize Saudi Arabia for very little input and use these ballistic missiles through the Houthis, really, to uh, antagonize Saudi Arabia with, without actually having to put much in financially or with boots on the ground, as it were, with Iranian Revolutionary Guard. Obviously, one of the things that stands out the most for me about this conflict is the unbelievable civilian toll, uh, which you've observed up close. When did you first realize that this was a humanitarian disaster? When does that begin, and how does it happen? I think I always knew that it was going to be once the war started, because even after 2011, there were implications economically that created even then a, a much smaller scale humanitarian problem in Yemen. But Yemen's the poorest country in the Middle East. You don't have this large middle class. And people were, and children in remote villages were starting to struggle and feed themselves even in, in 2012. And then things improved by 2014. But it was quite clear that there was any rocking of the system in Yemen. It wasn't prepared for any kind of shocks in that way. And so that as soon as a war did start, and if it went on for longer than two weeks, that the Saudis predicted that it would last, that there was going to be a major humanitarian problem. And of course, we're now seeing the outcome of that. And it's economic warfare. This is not about a shortage of food, essentially. If you go into the markets now in Yemen, 
you'll see food there, you'll see flour, you'll see rice. Yes, there are access issues to getting food out to people in some places, but overall, it's not about the shortage of food. It's about the fact that people can't afford to buy it because Yemen imported up to 90% of its food in, in peacetime. And when you've had import restrictions placed on the country, which the Saudi-led coalition has done, when you've had currency collapse, when you've had civil servants' wages have stopped being paid now for two and a half years, food prices have rocketed, fuel prices have soared as well, and people simply cannot afford to go out and buy the food that is sitting in the markets. So is the food just sitting there rotting, or does anybody buy it? Um, Yes, some people do. What you normally find when you go into the markets is people are buying it in much smaller quantities. So you'll find people, you know, going in there buying food for their families and they'll be buying a tenth of what they were buying before. And so um, when they do have the ability to buy that, it's just in much, much smaller quantities. And hence this reason why you have this problem with severe acute malnutrition, particularly of of young children and the other people that are very vulnerable are are the elderly, of course, because when you've got food shortages like that, and obviously, you know, developing and growing children, they're the ones that really suffer. Did you start to see this primarily first in the small villages and now also in the cities? Do you mean, do you see malnourished children in the street? Or is it something you've gone out to report? I think when you first saw it was initially it kind of hit you with the, the amount of beggars that were on the street, people begging for food or money and just you know, that always existed in Yemen before, but suddenly there being a lot more people, women and children on the streets begging. And then when you go into the hospitals as well, and you'd have in in bigger cities like Aden, where they previously had anyway, um, severe acute malnutrition treatment places, but they were suddenly inundated with numbers. And they were always young children and babies and then the mothers would come in with them and you could, it was quite clear that the mothers were, were malnourished as well. And that's when I decided to go out actually to some of the rural areas and see how they were coping. You know, you, you speak to children who will tell you about how now they dream about eating things like chicken or dreaming about being able to eat cake again. And yes, of course, any of those children now that were also suffering any kind of ill health or disease on top of that, the ability of those families to get them to medical care has also been reduced because of the cost of transport. I'd meet families that had sold off livestock in order to be able to pay for transport to get to medical care with their children, whether it be they had cholera or malnutrition or other health issues, selling off land to do that. And added to that, less than 50% of the um, medical facilities in the country are now operating because of the war and because of airstrikes and because of fighting. And so, yeah, I think what we don't really see with Yemen is an understanding of the numbers of people that have died as a knock-on effect to the war, not just in the kinetic aspect of it, in the people that have have starved to death. And I'm not sure we'll ever have a true understanding of, of what those numbers are. How do you protect yourself? I mean, both physically, I mean, from cholera and everything else, but also emotionally. I do that because of the help of a network of very close Yemeni friends. I I lived in Yemen for over four years. I have a network of people that I think, you know, in the journalism world, we call them fixers. For me, they're news assistants, they're friends. They not just go out of their way, but they put their own lives at risk to be able to help me to do what I do. And I wouldn't be able to do it without them, without a shadow of a doubt. Emotionally, it's changed a lot for me. I think having lived there initially and 
when I was covering the revolution, you're very much part of it. When you're seeing people being shot at or tear gassed, you're standing there with them when that happens. When the water ran out, the water ran out in my house and I didn't have water there for three months. And so that when you're then writing that as a journalist and about uh, what you're seeing and, and what you're experiencing, it's quite a cathartic process and you kind of let that go and you write your stories and that kind of moment sort of passes. But now I'm in this very luxurious position of dipping in and out of the country, which more journalists tend to do anyway. And I can go home after a few weeks or a couple of months. And I'm witnessing things that I can't even begin to imagine what they must be like, you know, when a when a mother is watching her child starve to death in her arms. And actually now I find the writing process has a reverse effect because I will get back home in the luxury of a Western world and sit there in my house quite comfortably and be writing those stories and I feel much more disconnected to it. I mean, you say it's a luxury to to dip in and out, but I read in one of the pieces you've written, I think for The Intercept, that journalists are smuggling themselves in by boat sometimes. Have you done that yourself? Yeah, that was kind of essential at the beginning of the war. I did. I went in and out by boat from Djibouti three times. I mean, when I say smuggling, you know, I had a visa, but there were no authorities to stamp that visa on arrival. At the same time, although you could get a visa, getting access was incredibly hard. The Saudi-led coalition and the Saudis particularly were going out of their way to prevent journalists getting access. They weren't allowed on UN humanitarian flights. And in fact, in some cases, flights were grounded when they found out there were journalists on board. And it became incredibly difficult to get into the country. I want to pull us back again to the sort of greater geopolitics for a minute um, and ask you a little bit about the U.S. involvement. Where is the United States in all this mix? Well, since 2015, the U.S. has been quite crucial, really, particularly to the air campaign. Mid-air refueling of the fighter jets that are being used to carry out the air campaign and bombing runs into Yemen on intelligence for targeting in strikes, uh, as well as diplomatic cover, obviously, and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of arms supplies and uh, and weapons supplies to the Saudi-led coalition. And I think that's where you see it materialising on the ground is, you know, I've dug out US bomb remnants from civilian homes that have killed children myself. And now that's a fairly common occurrence in Yemen is US bomb remnants being found um, in sites where there have been, you know, mass civilian casualties. I think um, now, although the the US has consistently supported the Saudi-led coalition, you know, we're now hearing how that is changing as a result of events really with Jamal Khashoggi over the last three weeks and the pressure that has built internationally on Saudi Arabia And now we've had statements out of the State Department um, and from Jim Mattis, from the Defence Secretary, calling for both a ceasefire and and political talks. But then we also look at what's coming up in the next 30 days. You've got the midterm elections. And then after that, because of really what happened with Jamal Khashoggi, there has been much more pushback against the US and Saudi relationship and what's happening in Yemen Why do the Saudis see this as so crucial to their interests? It plays into the to the regional power struggle with with Iran and and, and Saudi Arabia. And I suppose 
if you're looking at it from from the Saudi perspective for a moment, they have got major infrastructure, whether that be desalinization plants, um, oil export terminals, etc., that are within range now of Houthi ballistic missiles, never mind the connection to Iran or not, that threatens their security. In addition to that, you've got the Houthis, who they view as hostile, again, with or even with or without the Iranian connection, who have controlled at one point in the conflict the entire Red Sea coast of Yemen, which is crucial to both Saudi exports of oil as well as imports of food. So from a basic security level for from the Saudis' perspective, this is a direct threat to their security. Add on to that what they see of you know, this threat from Iran and with the Houthis being so aligned to Iran and, you know, as they would say, an Iranian proxy controlling Sana'a or the Yemeni capital. And um, that makes the problem even more troubling for anybody sitting in Riyadh. Let's look at midterms. Do you see this having an impact on American involvement in Yemen? I would have said before the Jamal Khashoggi incident, probably less so, that there wouldn't have necessarily been a huge change even if the Democrats had come out stronger, because we saw, even under the Obama administration, yes, there was a the suspension of precision-guided weapons sales, but that was a pretty minor move in the grand scheme of things where the US is involved, as I mentioned, in the mid-air refueling and other um, intelligence gathering that's helping the Saudi coalition. But I think now this has happened, and the momentum that it's created could well change things. A lot of this will depend on timing and anything else that may happen in in the course of the of the few weeks ahead, particularly with with the war powers resolution vote coming up that is gathering support even amongst Republicans. When do you think you'll be back, and do you think you'll continue this work? I'll be back soon <laughs> without going into too much detail. <laughs> Visas are still always a, a bit of a challenge for Yemen, but I will be back there again very soon and I will keep going for the foreseeable future, but I do feel uh, it's taking its toll, I think, as the years go on, you know. I feel it's slightly Stockholm syndrome now with me with Yemen, you know. <laughs> it's it's difficult to extract myself from it, and I very much fell in love with the country when I was living there. I haven't lived anywhere as long in my adult life as I have when I was living in Sonar, so I'm very attached to it, but I also realise... I will at some point have to extract myself from it as well. At the very beginning, you said you'd come to journalism later in life or as a second career. What was your first? I was riding and training racehorses for 15 years since I was a teenager. Did you know when you switched careers that you'd want to go into conflict zones? Or is that what you thought you'd do? No. And that even now, I hate this kind of term of being even referred to or being described as a war correspondent. When I went to Yemen, there wasn't a war. And there is a war now. And yes, I have been covering a conflict for the last three and a half years. But I'd like to think that I would have still been doing it anyway. And so, yeah, I'm not a conflict correspondent. I'm not a war correspondent. It just happens to be that that's where things ended up. Are you hopeful at all that world attention that's now turned to Yemen because of Khashoggi or otherwise can shift the dire humanitarian situation on the ground? I'd like to think it would, but I'm not optimistic, no, to be honest with you. 
perhaps that's a reflection of what I get off the ground as well. You know, the one thing I've always said about Yemenis is even when the chips are really down, they're really they're always optimistic and they have a great sense of humour. But every time I've gone back now, I've seen that hope kind of fading and fading and people have become more and more desperate. So I, I perhaps in turn also find it hard to be optimistic. Um, and maybe I'm just also a little bit cynical about the way different nations are playing this whole Khashoggi story, whether it be Turkey in their own interests or the US in theirs or, or Saudi Arabia. And in the midst of all of that, there's hundreds of thousands of people starving to death in Yemen that nobody's really been paying attention to for the last three years. And this one event has made people focus on it, but not enough to change it, I don't think, unfortunately. I hope I'm wrong. Thank you so much, Iona. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Iona Craig is a freelance journalist who has been covering Yemen since 2010. She joined us from the UK. First Person is produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host. <laughs>